I once asked my mother if she thought she was going to see my father again in heaven. She said, well, I don't think we're going to be sitting on a cloud talking, but something will happen. Like, she didn't buy that. She was more of a thinker. When she died, she left us a letter that was so profound. It's written to my three sisters and me that I, because I was going to do her eulogy, and for her eulogy, I just read her letter of goodbye to us. It was so profoundly poetic and deep. And I'm paraphrasing, her wording is so much better. If you ever need me, call to me, and I will fly to you and untangle the chain of your sadness. Welcome to Egon's. I'm Scott Carter. On the first work day after Labor Day in 1988, my friend and fellow stand-up comic Michael Patrick King and I met early in the morning for coffee at a diner just south of New York's legendary Brill Building, where we would, in an hour, report to our official first day for both of us to work professionally in television as writers. And it was this sort of pre-chaos moment before an adventure that we both hoped might accelerate our careers and lives and those of our friends and co-workers on this new show. Michael, of course, went on to become the Emmy-winning producer, writer, director, and prime mover behind the global cultural phenomena that is Sex in the City, which legendary story guru Robert McKee once likened to the comedies of Moliere. High praise indeed. Michael's many other triumphs include Two Broke Girls and the twice-incarnated The Comeback. We've had fortunate, exhilarating, rollercoaster careers and have always stayed friends. Michael Patrick King, welcome to Ye Gods. I am so happy to be here, Scott. Oh my God, the Brill Building. I believe right after that coffee, as we were walking through the lobby, you said, um, uh, did you know that in 1934, uh, somebody <laughs> created a song that then became in the best face follies of 1950? <laughs> we didn't even push up on the elevator yet. And we were promised on that show, it was called My Mouth to Mouth. Our friend Steve Scrovan was the host, and he's the one who hired us. And it was on MTV, it was the second show, the second original show that they did. And we were promised by the president of the network, Doug Herzog, we would be guaranteed three years. And then we got canceled after 10 weeks at Christmas. One of the interesting things about that show and what I've come to realize in many shows where I've been canceled <laughs> right before Christmas is that everything that is in show business was in that first job. Every lesson, every it just is it just becomes a higher altitude, but your lungs expand. But when we started that, it was the most important thing we could ever do. And and it turns out to be that's the way that we both do every job, unfortunately, for our emotional balance. But it's so important. We have to succeed. I mean, we would kill ourselves writing something called bumpers. Which were, which were um, a 30-second outro into commercial and a 30-second intro. And we would scour our brains and the city even for like what's interesting that we could put into this talk show on MTV. I mean, you discovered Yanni the artist on the street and was like, what if he comes in and paints the wall during a show? So our, we were canceled, but our creativity was off the charts in terms of, it, it didn't fit, which is, by the way, the paradigm for my entire career. It's well, always too much than they, that they want. Yeah, I've always told people it was like a clinic in how not to produce yeah. because it was an example of a network second-guessing themselves at every moment and thinking, well, this element, what if it fails? We'll have another element. So we had... When I tell people, they can't believe it. We had uh, phones so that there could be, because it was a live show, we could also have calls with the guests. And then we had theme audiences. We debuted on Halloween night, and our theme audience were witches and warlocks. <laughs> our first guest was Cher, who has remained big, but she could was never bigger than she was at that moment. She was the first guest, and the witches and warlocks hated her. Because they hated the movie Witches of Eastwick. So so we had more people hating us than loving us. 
And it was just, so I've known since then, anything I do, you go to one idea and you go out from that one thing and everything supports that one idea and you don't try and have 20 ideas. I mean, what I sort of figured out in that show is that there is always going to be someone nervous or afraid in charge of creativity and they will have a good chance of destroying any impulses that are great because they're either too new or they're too not what they were expecting or they're fear-based. You know, that thing Marianne Williamson said, it's one of the few things I got out of her entire thing was when fear is present, no other emotion can exist. So the idea that you have an executive who's terrified this is going to fail, they can't laugh. So when we were pitching stuff and it was falling on deaf ears and you would say to me, just think about being neutral. That is the one that would never describe but your oxygen to me at the bottom of the ocean was be neutral you'll you'll survive (laughs) but i couldn't be and that was when i began to understand the only way in television for me was to get to the person who can't be told no in a creative environment but who can say yes because there was i was too many no's coming at us constantly in every job hey so um, we've had we had a text exchange a few weeks ago uh, because I wanted to get your opinion about this this podcast still new to me and I feel like I'm still learning it and you wrote back some really interesting comments and I said thanks for the kind words please be a guest and then you texted I'd love to talk about spirituality journey to my sexuality so uh, I want to go there and I want to add another word here which is truth. I mean, I have to tell you that, speaking of truth, I was not living my truth. And I was on stage in a comedy club in the late 80s doing improv in clubs. The, the, the Taj Mahal was the improv on 44th Street. The more traditional experience was in a club in Lake Apatcon, New Jersey, that thought it was a comedy club and had a, you're standing on a riser two inches from a floodlight, and it's filled with what we would then call well, you can't call them that anymore, but I will say mooks. I mean, and here I am on stage trying to hide the fact that inside of me is a gay man. I'm presenting as a just a high-energy straight guy <laughs> who's fast and funny. And I had a wonderful comedy partner named Lisa Mende, and we would do all these clubs because it was the beginning of really trying to make money. Comedy equaled money at that time. And it was the only place people were getting paid. I used to say, I know really hacky stand-ups making a living, and I know brilliant actors starving. So the idea that we were getting paid to go to New Jersey on the weekends or Connecticut, and I'm, I knew what I was. I just wasn't prepared to face it yet in public. So one night we were playing a comedy club called Billy Jack's Cafe of Comedy in, uh, in Connecticut, and the entire club was covered in shag rug. It went from the floor in the bar, across the showroom, up the stage, over the stage, and up the wall. And there were conquistador shields on the wall. The Summer Olympics were on. And if you're saying 88, it must have been the 88 Summer Olympics were on in the bar, which I could see through the archways. And I'm on stage, and Lisa and I would wear matching black and white like she'd wear the female version of a black and white shirt and I'd wear like a white shirt with a black and white crazy tie and I used to have to introduce our act to the audience and I'm going on and on about hey we're King and Mende and what we do is improv and we're going to come to you for suggestions and there's a table of six straight guys sitting right at my feet and I hear one say to the others look at this fucking faggot jerk off asshole and I'm the only one who hears it. And it's magnified in my Alice in Wonderland shame fall as I fall through the ground grabbing roots to try to keep myself up. And I keep talking and talking and talking. But my journey really was about, I mean, when you're on stage at stand-up, there is really no place to hide. So I think it's really interesting that I put myself, after the comedy team, I went right back in when we were doing the writing and I started doing stand-up and eventually became an MC. I mean, my material as stand-up was good, 
but it wasn't great because I was hiding the truth. I wasn't really talking about the fact that I was hot closeted. I was doing jokes about my three sisters, you know, <laughs> and like uh, most guys see uh, uh, see a woman and think, hey, uh, I'd like to make her like I'd like to get her to make it in bed. I have three sisters, so I think, hey, I'd like to get her to make my bed. You know what I mean? It was soft, but the idea of truth. My entire journey has been to get to the point where I was telling the truth and. Years later, after I went to Hollywood, there was a thing called Uncabaret, and I had already come out. And you could do comedy, and you were supposed to do comedy that you had made up that day. I met Julia Sweeney there, and lots of people, Margaret Cho. But the reality is, that's when I started talking about me and random sex. And I'm telling you, I felt the room explode because I was really telling the truth. And I only did that like once, I already had a job, so I didn't need anything, the need was gone. My only need was to tell the truth and find a way from the writing point of view to make it a story for that night. But I really felt the difference between what standups do when they tell the truth, really great standups, and what I was doing back in the day and what I could do now, which is just be myself on stage in front of people. When and, someone, and, and then so was it an immediate sense of this is freedom, this is, uh, this is what I should be doing on stage? The, this, is, this is what you should, not what I should be doing, but this is what one should do. And yeah. I, I knew it was right because when I would come off stage, when I was in it, I felt like I was on fire, literally like I was Joan of Arc in the flames. And when I came off, I would first thought was, why did I just do that to myself? Why did I just pull all my skin off on stage? What was that for? But also the fun of trying to uh, say something you hadn't planned based on the audience's reaction. It was very communal because you're in communion with the audience and you don't want to fail and you're so naked anyway. So it was definitely, a, 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 I felt that experience the first time I ever felt it was the first time I did improv in a group. I went on stage with a group and I was like, oh, I've been hit by lightning. This is lightning. I could feel it. Versus when I was starting out to be an actor, I'd be like looking around at everybody on stage, looking at the audience thinking, do they think I'm good? Do they believe this? When I was in improv, I was like, I just got hit by lightning. I need to get more of this. I don't know what it is, but this is me. This is me. Whatever this is, fast, unedited me. So you were living in Los Angeles. You moved out to LA to be writing on sitcoms. I was still in New York. So when when you came out, and I don't re remember the year, but I remember you came back to New York and you kind of did a coming out tour where you, all the friends who've known you for years, you invited us either to lunch or dinner. And had you rehearsed a, a speech to tell us yeah. all? Because I remember, but I remember feeling like, um, well, first of all, I think you, you got total acceptance from all the, the friends. Am I, am well, I yeah, correct? I mean, correct. I mean, look, the, the whole thing was about, I, it took me, so, first, let me just say, first of all, that I knew who I was at 13, but not telling anyone until I finally came out at 38. So that's roughly a long time. And why it took so long to come out to my friends is so much of who I was in my mind was closeted and shame-based and a secret that I thought if I told people that I was gay, that they would immediately second guess every other part of me that they knew wasn't as authentic as I thought I wasn't being with my sexuality. So what I wanted to do was to sit across from people and tell them the truth. And I had no speech except this is the truth. And I know everybody's different and I told people in a different way. And some of the conversations were like, duh. And some of the conversations were like, somebody said to me, oh, I feel so bad for you that it took you so long, all those years wasted. And I thought, well, it took me as long as it took me and they weren't wasted. And they were really my journey of getting here was an enormous decathlon of self-acceptance through from the Catholic Church, through spirituality, through meditation, through mirroring myself in a mirror and talking to myself, it was all worthwhile to get me here. And as a matter of fact, you talked about the tour of me talking to people. One of the things I did with that experience was I wrote a play called Thorn 
in where, and we did it in Hollywood. And it was a one act play was coupled with another act called Bloom, Thorn and Bloom. And the premise was a gay television writer invites Jesus to lunch at Orso to tell him that he's gay. And when Jesus doesn't react, he doesn't know what to do because he wants Jesus to judge him the way he's judged himself for all these years or the way the Catholic church dogma has manipulated the image of Jesus to be the judger or you'll cry. And one of the funny things in the play is when he finally says, and Chris Sarandon played Jesus and Don Berman, who's a wonderful actor, played the writer. And Chris Sarandon shows up at Orzo with a cross and crown of thorns. And at the moment when the, the, the um, writer finally tells him it was rigged so that this giant stigmata of blood pours down Jesus's face from the, from the uh, crown of thorns and he doesn't react. And, it's, and then the writer's like, stop doing that. He goes, I'm not doing this, you're doing this. This is how you want me to be. <clears throat> I don't care. It's up to you, you just don't hurt people. That's my rule, don't hurt people. Be whoever you are, just be nice to them after. I saw that, I saw those two one acts. The first act ended with pastries for the audience, a, a gift. It was actually the second part. Oh, okay. The first part was Thorn. The second part was in heaven. And Joanna Gleason, the brilliant Joanna Gleason, mm -hmm. plays this sort of TED Talk tour guide who is telling the audience what to expect as they're about to reincarnate to Earth. And she gives everyone a fake identity and you raise your hand, and, okay, you're this, you're a acrobat, you're this. So everybody has this comic sense of who they're gonna be. And then she says, one of the great things about being human is cake. And she brings out this little coconut cake. And she says, who would like a piece? And the audience of about a hundred people doesn't know how to respond because they're polite and they know there's a small cake. And so she says, oh, I see you're already thinking in terms of humanity, limited thought. So she says, there's enough cake for everyone. And so there's like trays of cake come out of nowhere and everybody eats cake. And while they're eating this coconut cake with sugar from Sweet Lady Jane, which was a very expensive bakery, I wanted a really good cake. She says, now I'm gonna tell you the bad stuff. And she talks about all the ways your body will completely disappoint you and it'll fall apart and break apart. And then she says, but it can also do this. And she sings the shaker, simple gifts, the shakers to him. And Joanna sings it a cappello. And the audience is eating this cake. And by now they're metaphysically, metabolically high and freaked out. And she's, it's beautiful. And she sings this song. And then the lights just go. And the last line is now go bloom. And it goes, Phoom. and the audience has had this and I'm not saying this just because I wrote it. I'm saying there was a chemical reaction that happened when you give an audience sweets and then they're ingesting them, at, which is altered to get a present from the stage, from theater to get something that's actually bread. I mean, if you want to go completely last supper about it here, break this bread, eat this cake with me. And then they get this beautiful moment from her. Here's what I'm thinking as you're telling all of this. I'm thinking how one of my uh, constant impressions of you, and and it, it it persists to this day, is how intently you observe everything that ever happens. This is how your mind has always worked, and there must have been such a huge relief when you must have been on a dual track between what I'm perceiving and what I can acknowledge. So you've got these two things in you. One is I've got to be honest, but the other is because you're born Irish Catholic and in rural Scranton, Pennsylvania, and you went to a parochial school and you were an altar boy. And so all of that comes back. So when you're growing up, how are you perceiving what the church that your parents are having you attend more than once a week yeah how are you perceiving and it gets to your one act play how the god you're all the family's worshiping how does that god feel about you and do you believe in that god i'm all in let's just start there i'm all in there was no way i could be raised in a catholic family and not be all in both my parents are very religious my only i think the the bonus i got from having my mother 
I think you can look at the Catholic Church in whatever frame you want. My mother chose to frame her Catholic Church around the Blessed Virgin, the Holy Family. That's who she sort of, it's almost like the heathen part of the Catholic Church, the goddess. My mother really wanted the loving Catholic Church. She needed the family, the Holy Family, St. Joseph, the Blessed Virgin, the Child. So what I got from my mother was the loving, loving Catholic Church, the good shepherd, the female part of it. What I got from Catholic school was the crown and the thorns and the punish part. And the boys are bad and girls are better than boys. They used to crown the Blessed Virgin. And that means you symbolically put a wreath of flowers on the Blessed Virgin's head in her month, which is May. And it's a very, very Game of Thrones kind of ritual that is what I was so drawn to, by the way, all the ritual. But the year my sister Eileen was in the class, they would have the little girl crown the thing and then a little boy carry the crown, be the ring bearer. The year my sister was in second grade, the nuns told her there wasn't any boy holy enough, so they picked two girls. So they basically said, none of you boys are holy enough. Next year was me, I got to carry the crown. So I guess I was holy enough. So let's start there. The performance of me being the holiest was my first character. And I really wanted to be the holiest. If I was going to do this, I was going to be the holiest. When I was an altar boy, and you get to be an altar boy in fifth grade, and what's exciting is I was in the last year of Latin. So I had to learn the whole church in Latin. And it was the point where the church was exclusive to the audience or parishioners, really had nothing to do with them. I think it was even holier before they went hootenanny and made you included. You, you could just hear this chanting and smoke, and you could go off in your own world and be in God's heaven and just think about things. Let your mind drift. You can't participate. You don't need to say, and the Lord be with you. You know a couple of Latin phrases, so you feel like you're participating. But when I was an altar boy, my first mass was at five in the morning. I asked my mother to come and take pictures. It was me, an old Italian lady, and my mother, and I wanted a Polaroid or I wanted a flashbulb picture of me being on the altar as an altar boy. It was a press moment for me. My mother said to me, I don't think your heart's in the right place. And, and what did you think? Did you think she was right? I thought I was, I was holy. I thought there was a- uh, Okay, so, so, so uh, pardon me for interrupting, but let me just clarify this. You're getting this, on the one hand, you're seeing it as a performance. So you're yes. seeing a certain um, distance between who you actually are and then this role that you're going to perform in the same way that an actor is never completely the character. There's always some difference. First of all, it's like Meryl Streep winning the Academy Award for Sophie's Choice. She was clearly not Sophie, but she was the best. Now, I wasn't an angel, but in, but in terms of all the other, other altar boys, I was the best. I was pure of heart, and I literally could feel wings. You know what I mean? I could feel that I was an angel on earth, and I didn't really understand that I was dirty yet. I hadn't really crossed into the adult thought of you're going to hell yet. I was still in the... I'm going to heaven, I'm the holiest, and, and here's another theme in my life. I need to be recognized for that. <laughs> I need to be recognized for being something. And at that point, my brand was, I was very little and very cute, and I was very devout. I mean, to the point where in May, as I mentioned, that's the Blessed Virgin's month, they were, you were encouraged to do May altars at home which was a little altar where you would put a Blessed Virgin statue and then put flowers. And most people would do it like, mm, they just put a statue and flowers. I would build a stage. I would build an amphitheater out of Encyclopedia Britannica's levels. I'd cover it over with like a tablecloth. I would put the Blessed Virgin on a level. Then I'd bring lilacs in and do different versions. I basically window dressed it. But I was like obsessed with the theatrics and my involvement in it. So I didn't know that I was in a duality. I just knew that I was not 
or unaware of an audience, I guess. What about the other altar boys? Did they think you were superior to them or did they resent you? I didn't have any awareness of the altar boys being bad for me the way they were in school, which was not good, bullies, etc. But in, in church, I felt safe, except that when I would go to church in the morning, very early to light the candles before like a five o'clock mass, there was always a feeling of fear. Uh, first of all, it was dark and you're in a holy place. And I remember lighting those candles and thinking that if I looked at the statues long enough, one of them would look back at me. Like I actually would break the gaze because I thought they're going to they're gonna look at me. There was so much alive mysticism in my mind. I would take any candle dark moment to think like, oh, they're going to look at me. But so of course, obviously now by now, I know that sex is dirty. I'm dirty. It's dirty. I have to go to confession. Ooh, what's that like? What's your first confession like? Uh, it's a, a performance. You have to go into a dark room and close the door. And this judgmental holy priest is hidden from you, but sort of you can see him because there's a cloth. And then you make up stuff like I was mean to my parents, but you have to ritualistically do it. And I remember the last part of it was so hard was finding the doorknob to get out. Like you couldn't get out. Like you wanted to make an exit. Say five Hail Marys. Okay, get out of here. I think the first adult rational thought I had about the Catholic Church was, I actually thought if God knows everything and God sees everything, then he knows my sins and he knows if I'm sorry and why do I have to go through this other party? If God knows everything, why? Why do I have to do this? This felt like a, a, a false narrative to me. I don't understand it. I'm pretending that I'm telling this guy something that God doesn't know. I didn't understand the concept of humiliating yourself as part of it or owning it. But I just, that's the first time I thought, like, I don't think, I don't believe in confession. And it's the first sacrament I stopped participating in. Like, I didn't think it was worthwhile or valuable. I didn't get it. I thought, this is, this is my first adult thought. Were there others? And then did you stop going to church? Did you, uh, did you ever question the religion to your parents? Um, I stopped going to church when I went to college. And when I went to college, I mean, this is almost a parable, but when I, went, when I graduated high school, I was four foot 10. When I came home from my first year of college, I was 5'11". So I grew like a freaky giraffe. The minute I left my family's home, I started growing spiritually and emotionally. But one of the first things that I knew was I didn't go to church anymore. And my mother would ask me, Michael, are you going to church? but I didn't want to lie to her. So I would say, I, I believe in God. And she would say, I didn't ask you if you believed in God. I asked you if you were going to church. Um, I, so I stopped going to church. I never told them that I didn't believe in God because I still believe in God. And when my parents were alive, I would always go back to Pennsylvania to Christmas. And every time I was home, I would go to church with them and I would sit in that pew and I would be wide open like, Yours to lose, priest. I'm right here. Say something in this homily. Yours to lose. And they would, every service, lose it. They would never pick up the ball and run. They would never, you know, it's desperate if I'm making sports analogies, but they would never, ever bring it home. And I was there. And I'm still mentally there for the ritual. I'm constantly going into churches. Occasionally, I will just get out of bed and get on my knees and give thanks. Just like I'll have a thought. You should say, you should get out of bed right now. You're comfortable. You should get out of bed and get on your knees and just give thanks. And I will. I used to be on my knees in terror, terror. When I was in eighth grade, I was convinced I was going to go to hell by being bit by a vampire. I saw a vampire double feature once where a priest was bit by a vampire and it blew my mind because I thought, well, there's no antidote. If a man of God can get bit by a vampire, then how can I not get bit by a vampire? 
and not go to heaven. That was the problem of being bit by a vampire. Not that you lived forever and you killed other people. It's that you weren't going to go to heaven. You would not be allowed into heaven. And getting into heaven was, you know, the goal uh, of everything in my childhood uh, philosophy of what God is. You got to get to heaven. So at one point I was praying and I would, and I would also pray and out loud, I would pray. I had a list of prayers and, and, I, and, I, and I still do a list of prayers at night that are radically different, but it was like, please protect me from, I'm, I, I'm gonna paraphrase it, fire, burglars, murderers, uh, a, a lightning. And it, my catchphrase at the end was, or any kind of an unforeseen death. Cause I wanted to not suddenly be caught going to hell. Like if I could know a death was coming, I would confess, even though I didn't believe in confession, I wanted to be ready. So one night I was saying my prayers and I looked down at my, and I'm not kidding you, Scott. I looked down at my, my little arm and I see two mosquito bites or something. And I was convinced I was bit by a vampire when I wasn't looking. And I went downstairs. My father was in the Lazy Boy. My father, who is a janitor at the post office, my mother who works at Krispy Kreme. And I'm in a panic screaming, I was bit by a vampire. And I made my father promise if I died in my sleep, he would put a stake through my heart so I could go to heaven. And I would not go to bed until he said, fine, if you die in your sleep, I'll put a stake through your heart so you can go to heaven. Now go to bed. But I was convinced that I was going to die and not go to heaven. So I guess the nuns won in terms of what my Catholic imprinting was more than my mother. And now uh, as an adult, when I go into a church, if I'm in Italy, if I'm anywhere, any town I, in New York, I was just working in New York. I was like, I'm going to go in here. It's always my mother's church that I go into. It's never the nun's church. It's never the punishment church. It's always the, the blue virgin, the light a candle, the thankful love church. I'm sitting here and feeling the silence of all this worship that people have done. It has nothing to do with punishment or I better go in there. It, it's like, I, I, I want to sit in that holy charged area for five minutes and give thanks or think of my mother or light a candle for my mother or my father. And, uh, you know, the other thing about worrying about dying without going to heaven, about coming out, my biggest fear is that my father would die before I told him I was gay. Because I had at this point believed spiritually enough that I thought I came to earth for a reason. I know I figured I was now on this path where I created my own reality. I came to earth to work things out for my next life on earth after all my journeying through all this other philosophy and religion. And so I knew that I would have failed this life if I didn't tell my father. So when I told my father, I felt I achieved the most scary thing, which would be to come to earth for no, to not succeed. And I told him and he was magnificent. He just looked at me with so much love. And I remember it was like the look that would be like, to go with the phrase, the sound of the other shoe hitting the floor. It's like, boom, reality. And, he, and speaking of blue, he just looked at me with his blue eyes and uh, it was so good. And it was right around then that I started to achieve stuff significantly in terms of all of it, success. I stopped hiding. I was just recognized for the first time in all of my career endeavors. Did you tell your father separately from your mother? No, no, that's the comedy. That's the Irish of it. I told my father and my mother at Christmas. I had told my sisters. So I came home and my sisters knew I was going to tell them on Christmas. So all through the day, anytime there was a pause in the conversation, my sister Ellen would grab her little kids and go, come on, let's get up, let's go ice skating. Let's get, like give them room. So finally, they, everyone was gone. They went ice skating. And I said to my, my, and this is the truth too. I said to my mom, you know, my mom and dad, you know, you asked me 
last time you were in California, if I was going to get married. And I said, I was never going to get married. And they'd been working the whole Michael's a career guy angle for their friends. You know, oh, Michael's obsessed with his career. He's too busy. I finally said, and I'm not. And the reason I'm not is I'm gay. And by the way, I didn't want to cry when I told them. So I was sort of, I think in a children's theater production, <laughs> I was so overly happy. And the reason is like, I was so didn't want to say that I was sad because I wasn't, but I thought the information would make them sad. And I said, and the reason is I'm gay. And there's a pause. My father looks at me beautifully and my mother goes, oh, get out. I actually had to say the phrase, I'm not kidding, I'm gay. And then she started to download and things came out of her mouth that weren't making sense. Like, um, remember the, it sounded like those, you remember those laser laser jet ink printers that just would go, ow, 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 ow. She would start to go in things like, ow, crinoline slips, never should have let you play with Barbie. Ow, ow, ow. And it was all about her beating herself up for the things she had let me do. But this woman actually said, oh, get out. This is the same woman who would say to me when I was 11, Michael, brush my hair before I go to Novena. Well, you're, you're surprised that now, and my father'd walk in and I would throw the brush across the room. Did you anticipate this would be the reaction of the two of them? And had you planned your replies to their responses? I thought the reaction would be the opposite. I thought my mother would be loving and my father would be confused. And it was the direct opposite. My mother was confused and my father was loving. And I think it's funny because you would assume my mother would know me more than anyone. So she was dealing with her own shit. And my father was not. He was just taking in the fact that now he understood something that he probably already thought because I was terrible at sports and terrible at everything and was always incredibly uncomfortable with just him. Like there was always something between us that he probably couldn't even understand that I did. And then that night we were playing a board game around the kitchen table called like mind games. And you had to ask a question. And one of the questions was reveal a deep dark secret to someone at this table. And everybody started laughing. <laughs> and then my mother said, all right, all right, we get it. All right. You know what I mean? So we had, we had moved through the Irish story mill to now we were making a overview story about it. My mother was begrudgingly the butt of the joke. And so she began her process, which sort of did not go well with my first boyfriend and she was very uh combative she came out for saint patrick's day because i used to do a party in la my parents would my mother and father would come out my my father would did i had all my hollywood friends by then and we would have like 150 people at this house with an irish band my mother was making ham and cabbage for everybody in the middle of the party my father would disappear then he'd show up walking up the front door dressed as saint patrick i mean my father was very theatrical, but my mother was buying, buying hams and there was this new boyfriend and she was just combative. Well, I think I know how to make a ham, you know, like it did not go well. And guess what? She was right about him. He was not trustworthy and he was not a good guy deep down. When you mentioned your father coming up the driveway of St. Patrick, I remember you telling me a story about going to see Phantom with your parents? Oh my God. And going back oh, into the oh dressing room afterwards? Uh-huh. First of all, we went, I took my, one of my friends, uh, my, my most successful New York friend at that time was playing the Phantom on Broadway, Chris Groendahl. And he was like, bring your, and Phantom was like, he was like the third Phantom. So it was still early. So my mother and father and I said, my sister Eileen Marissa, I got tickets to Phantom, which I didn't have money, but I got these great tickets to Phantom. So they come. And of course in our, and this is like, why, why can it ever not be our Irish luck? It pours rain. It's a matinee. It's pouring rain. No umbrellas. They're parked at the Port Authority. We're walking in the rain. We're soaked. My mother's sneakers are soaked. We're sitting in orchestra seats, wet, like wet wool smell. And I'm thinking, why can't we ever have anything nice? Why does it always have to be seeing the phantom with wet feet? So, but I'm, and my mother, I remember my mother hearing that song. I, and I could feel that at one point, there's this very theatrical moment where this 
the, 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 the lead la- lady is singing this song in front of a crypt and it's just epic. And I could feel my mother's spirit lift up like, I've never seen anything like this. And they were literally lifted up out of the wetness, and the wholeness. And we go backstage to see, see my friend Chris. And it's like, you know, speaking of going backstage, it's kind of like a church. And I look over and my father's got the phantom mask on his face and he's like, Fitz, Fitz, boo. You know, like he's, he's turned the phantom into Halloween. And, but he's like, he had no, no, he was just charming. When he met Candace Bergen for the first time, he goes, how do you do, Candy? I mean, it was just, just very familiar suddenly. Your parents lived long enough to see your success. See it all. How My did they, what was oh. that like? I mean, they loved it. My father and mother saw the beginning. My fa- they saw Murphy Brown. I mean, I got a Murphy Brown. Um, I, I, I was, my first very big job was I was promoted to executive producer of a sitcom called Sybil. But it was like a crazy coup experience where half the writing room split and there were 15 of us and five of us were chosen by Sybil to move forward because we liked her and everybody else was banished. And I was suddenly made executive producer and my parents were visiting as I was made executive producer. I had to rewrite the scripts. So um, they were in the cafe scene. And I said, would you want to be in the show? Well, I'll put you behind Sybil as, sitting at the table. And so they're sitting behind Sybil and Sybil looks over and she goes, this is exciting because we never have elders as background people. This is very pro. And so I'm watching and I'm executive producing and I'm watching the feed and it's and my mother and father and the waiter comes over and my mother is making so many faces as a background person. She's just like overdoing it and mama, mama. And I go up after that take and I go, mom, you're making more faces about a fictional spinach salad than you did when I told you I was gay. Get, 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 get bring it down a notch. And I said, just sit here when the waiter's talking to you and say your rosary with your mouth. Just calm down. My father was perfect. So then that weekend, I was fired. I read about it in the trades that there was a new executive producer. And I, my parents were there. I was, I was exalted and fired within two days. And I said to them, are you excited you're in the show? They said, well, you've been fired, so we're going to wait to see if we're still in it. I said, I'm editing it. If anything happens, you'll be in the show before Sybil Shepherd and Christine Baranski. The, that's going to be my dying wish to make sure that you two are seen in the show. So they had a lot of fun with it. Candace Bergen, amazing. And then Sex in the City, my father saw the beginning and the rise and the rise and loved the girls. And then he passed away and my mother saw it all the way through to the giant zeitgeist parties, to going to the premiere, to seeing me welcome everybody at Radio City for the, I mean, she saw, she was sitting next to me when I won my Emmy, given to me by our friend John Stewart, who was at the Comedy Channel with us. So she saw it all. So that was, I think, really special for her because I'm sure she was seeing it all and not wanting to acknowledge it from the time I was an altar boy asking for my picture. She was like, we got to stop this because this is going to be rough. I think she saw it all and was really worried about it all. It's it's so wonderful. Yeah, there was a quote that I read from you. There was a great relief in my Irish Catholic family that my sex life became my career versus just my shame. Yeah, it was a very big deal. And just for me, it, talk about one thing leading to the other. If I was hiding at all, I wouldn't have even had the courage to put my face to a show about sex. And it certainly wouldn't have been funny. And I certainly wouldn't have been pulling from my own experience. And I certainly wouldn't have. I think it's like that thing when you tell the truth, you have a better shot of being recognized. If something's authentic, it might be new, but at least people respond to it. And the idea of making fun of sex steered by somebody who had been in sex shame prison for their entire life, who is now liberated and still has that thing that all writers have, which is the overview. Even when I was in it, I had an overview. Even when I was in hell, literally, I was like, okay, I got to get out of this to the next thing. What is the next thing? So my family was, you know, of course the joke is the priest would say to my mother in the back of church, 
is Michael still writing that certain show that can't be named? You know, and she would chuckle, yes, you know. I mean, look at recognition is very, very difficult for an Irish heritage person. Our whole DNA is we're not chosen. I mean, my family anyway, I'm not talking about the Kennedys. Maybe they override it and they are, you better choose us, but it really is Irish need not apply. I mean, it's don't brag. If you get something, don't tell anyone and you're never going to get it. I mean, a lot of the drinking in my actual family, my father's side of the family, and my father's drinking was a reaction, I think, to the depression of not being able to get out of your circumstance because you'd have no idea how, because your circumstance is you're not recognized. I mean, you're the servants. I mean, that's what I come from. You're not recognized. You know, at one point my mother said to me when it all started to happen, Michael, just don't get conceited. And I was like, I wish that would be the greatest thing that could happen if I actually got conceited, where I would actually buy all this without the other part that says I don't deserve it or there's someone around the corner that's going to take it away or, or I'm failing because I should have never tried to reach for this thing. So my, my, my whole Irish upbringing has really been overridden by my drive to tell the truth about who I am and also just to say, but, you know, it's coupled with the writer, which, and, you know, we know that the, and not to be in massive generalizations, but one of our gifts, even if we're not chosen, is to write about how we're not chosen. You know, I mean, there's a, there's a great poetry, and my mother actually was a great um, mind. She was a great thinker and a great, I think would have been a great writer. As a matter of fact, her, when she died, she left us a letter that was so profound, that's written to my three sisters and me, that I, because I was going to do her eulogy, and for her eulogy, I just read her letter of goodbye to us. It was so profoundly poetic and deep. So, you know, I mean, whether she... Do, do you remember parts of it? Oh, my God. I, I mean, I'll re I can remember one sentence, which is like, I, I, I'm going to start crying, but, you know, first of all, it started with, don't be sad for me. Don't be sad because I'm where I want to be in this bigger place. And speaking of that, I want to put a sidebar in. I once asked my mother if she thought she was going to see my father again in heaven. So, well, I don't think we're going to be sitting on a cloud talking, but, you know, something will happen. Like she didn't buy that. She was more of a thinker, but she said to me, she said to us in this letter, and I'm paraphrasing, her wording is so much better. If you ever need me, call to me and I will fly to you and untangle the chain of your sadness. I mean, something like that, which was just like, what? This is what she's writing to us? that she's going to untangle the chain of our sadness and, and she'll always be there to, she'll fly to us. Like what? It was profound for me. And it was that poetic and that well-written. And she wrote it. I don't know. I think she wrote it when she could still see. So that was like, she had macular generations at the last year. So I don't think she wrote it then, but she had a poetic end for herself and such a comforting, loving thing for us. And, you know, it's not far from her prayers to the Blessed Virgin. You know, like, I'll, Mary will help me. I mean, my mother would pray every day that she'd say, Novena, help me, help us, help me get over this. So now she's telling me, basically, uh, I, I've ascended to the place where uh, call me and I'll come and help you. In a very humble way, she sort of ascended herself into a prayer receptacle, a saint. I mean, I never thought about that, but in reality, she thought she had so much power in heaven that she could come help us. That's phenomenal. And that's the gift she left us with, aside from everything else, which is, oh, get out. She has the other side, which is profound and deep and uh, spiritual and not punishing at all. That's what I mean. What she left us with was nothing but love. 
And that's all she sort of weaned out of Catholicism. Love, 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 which is not, unfortunately, what a lot of Catholics get. They get not a healthy, not that side. They get the darker side, which is the bad, bad punishment, punishment, fires, hell. That phrase that you read of hers, that you quoted, is so eloquent that she must have given it tremendous thought and there must have been some initial adjectives and nouns and verbs that were replaced by the perfect ones over time. Either that or like what you sometimes experience and I sometimes experience, a thought is fully formed without any effort and it's the perfect thought. She either worked really hard on it or it just flew into her from someplace else. I think that, you know, sometimes good writing, when it's very good, should not be questioned in its birth. Like, just because it came out in one sentence doesn't mean it needs to be questioned. Sometimes it's from some other place, whether it be your higher intellect or you know, people say to me, how long did it take you to write this script? I go, uh, 65 years. You know, like it's it's all working, but I think it either was very labored, like you said, or else completely in, inspired. Or or not even labored, but but um chosen. But but that she over a period of time, maybe she thought about this at night yeah. as she was going to sleep. And over a period of nights, perhaps the and words, the, the words like, because that the words that you read are like um, a, a, a lock when the tumblers fall yeah. into place and the safe, the vault opens. Yeah. And the thing is, she knew why she was writing it. And I think if she laid in bed at night and she was thinking about it, which I'm sure was true. It was because she wanted it to be the right thing for us when she was gone. So she was writing it for us. And a lot of writing I find is for the us that I do for them, for us. I'm sort of writing it to open, as you said, the lock of a thought about right now I'm on this new show. We're writing a lot about age and 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 relevance and family. And so a lot of the writing, I, you know, it's funny because I lay in bed at night too, thinking, 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 how am I going to write that? What's that going to be? And it's always about what's the thing that will unlock, like you said, the tumbler for a bigger thought for somebody else. It's never really about, I don't think it was about her. It was about us. And I think that a lot of good writing isn't about the writer as much as the us that are supposed to be receiving it. It's for them. It's for us. It's for you if you're writing. Otherwise, I don't think I could do it. I would just have a drawer full of, like I would write haikus. Because I, I think that's like a wordle. <clears throat> like it's like a game you're playing with words. Whereas sometimes when writing is good, it's for everyone to sort of respond to it or unlock a thought. I think that's, I think that's true. And the, the amount of emotion that was in you as you were quoting her, mm. that also came through to me. And, it, and I imagined the setting. I imagine how difficult it perhaps was for you to get through this letter without stopping. Um, yeah. and, and maybe you had to start some sentences over and, and what a gift from her to all of you yes. that all of the rest of your existences would, would have this, um, overriding blessing Yeah, that would be and, occurring to all of you. And at this point, I did have to stop a couple of times reading it. And at this point in my life, I recognized that that was the most important part of the performance is that I had to stop and let people see the emotion rather than try to be perfect, but try to be authentic. 
So when I would get emotional, I know I didn't try to override myself like I was doing something bad. I just tried to control it. You know what I mean? So I could keep going. But the most important experience of me reading that was celebrating her and also being the vessel of emotion that for my sisters and again for the for the audience or the people there who were moved by her. But I did like the fact that, and even now when I was saying it and it came up, I thought, what an exquisite gift that it's so close to me still under my surface that I could tap into it in a second that, no, I don't have to tap into it. It comes in that there's so much emotion still around a person or a thought that it's there and you, you're alive for it as an artist or, you know, I mean, you know, half of this whole experience is being open to your emotions, whatever you're writing. I mean, if you're not open to emotions and what are you doing? I don't know, but I love the fact that I can't speak of it. Do you know how, do you know how, what that feels like in your lungs, that push against your heart, that, that just that little moment that you're, it's bigger than you. That's bigger than your head. I mean, that's the joy of it. It's bigger than your head. For a moment, I was my feelings, not just my head and organizing them. I, I have people in my life, and there even have been guests on this podcast, who when something has become emotional for them, they apologize for having overflowing feelings. And my instinct always has been, if you're crying, you know you're alive. You, you, you know that you are exactly in the moment, and also you're exactly in gratitude or appreciation for either what's in front of you right now or that something wonderful has gone, or both. Or that at that, I agree. I think that it's unbridled you in that moment. And I think that's the, the goal is to be, uh, anyway, my goal, being born in a, the only boy in an Irish Catholic family in a working class town was to be unbridled me. And it took a long time to get to the point where I could just go and go, I'm not apologizing for that because that's who I am. And I agree. I think that people should almost apologize for under emoting. I'm sorry, I can't feel anything for you right now, uh, but well, I, and, it's, I, and, and it's interesting that you talked earlier about the feminine aspect of the Virgin in the Catholic experience, because so much of I don't know toxic masculinity is about blocking the the kind of feelings that those who are in touch with. The, the the feminine side have access to, and it makes them more rounded. It makes people more rounded when they are able. And and what and when people aren't rounded like that, they don't want to apologize even when they know they're wrong. They fake knowledge of things that they don't have because it, if they were to be ignorant, that would be a sign of weakness. And I think it's so much better. When you don't know and you say, I don't know, or when oh, you've I... done something that you know is wrong and you apologize, there is such power in a sincere apology to people. Well, um, there's such strength in really vulnerability. And that's what everybody's so afraid to show is vulnerability because what comes with vulnerability is vulnerability. <laughs> Somebody could see you or get you. So we all, from a very early age, you know, are told to one of the first miss uh, steps, I would think, in patterning that my mother gave me is when I was getting teased relentlessly at school and I would tell her in second grade that they're calling me sissy or whatever, she would say, just don't let them see that it bothers you. So that's a misstep. But I understand the strength of that like if you don't let them see, you know, that I understand both patterns, but to me it was 
you know, I don't know. And what if I had said, hey, this really bothers me. Hey, you're hurting my feelings. I probably would have been destroyed even more, but there wouldn't have been that conflict in me, that complete rerouting of everything I was feeling to try to find a, here we go again, a performative version of myself, which was like, I don't hear you. Do you know how hard it is to not hear people? To this day, I have to go, I didn't hear that. What? You know, I mean, there's a, there's a denial uh, that's in me, um, it crafted and hardwired in me that I have to constantly go like, uh-oh, you, you're in denial. You better listen. Um, you're not hearing what, you, what they're saying. You're hearing what you're afraid to hear it. But yeah, I mean, strength is to be vulnerable is the strongest thing of all. And that patterning from my mother was to be vulnerable is not strong. So that was kind of a misstep, but she, she did what she could. Michael Patrick King and I talked for 90 minutes, and I want to share as much of this with you as possible. So we're going to have that be episode part one, and next week we will do Michael Patrick King part two, and we hope that you will join us then. In the meantime, you can email us at yegodspodcast at gmail.com. You can contact us on social media at yegodspodcast. Or rate and review us, please, on Apple Podcasts. And until next time, be of good cheer.